Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Mastering the Room, brought to you by the Graduate School of Political Management at the George Washington University. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every episode on the show, we'll sit down with some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. They'll give us a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens and offer their tips for how you can not only get in the room, but master it just like they did. New episodes drop every other Monday, so be sure to subscribe to Mastering the Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening app may be. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating or review. Just a few seconds of your time can really help us spread the word and reach more listeners just like you. And if you want to learn more about GSPM, feel free to check out our website at www.gspm.gwu.edu. And now, without further ado, here's a brand new episode of Mastering the Room. Hello and welcome to Mastering the Room. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every week we take a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens, guided by some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. This week on the show, we're joined by Heather Matson, an alumna of the Legislative Affairs Program at GSPM and a passionate public servant and advocacy professional with decades of experience at the local, state, and national levels. Heather spent several years on the campaign trail in her home state of Iowa, working on a variety of roles for then-Senator John Kerry, former former Governor Tom Vilsack, Congressman Leonard Boswell, and serving as campaign manager for Dusky Terry in his race for Secretary of Agriculture. She's also worked extensively with Planned Parenthood of Greater Iowa, including serving as board chair for their political arm, Planned Parenthood Voters of Iowa, as well as serving as the vice chair of the Iowa Democratic Party. She's also spent a ton of time up at the Iowa State Capitol in Des Moines, first as a bill tracker following legislation as it winds its way through the legislative process, and now today as a member of the legislature herself, where she represents District 38 in the Iowa House of Representatives. Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, Steve, thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to do it. And the only clarification I would make is that my home state is actually Rhode Island, um, but Ah. I am am a very proud transplant to the state of Iowa. Adoptive home state of Iowa. Yes. Yes. My children are Iowans, so we'll count that. Yes. Well, let's start. Let's. That's a good segue into where we always start with these things, which is at the beginning. Uh, where does your story begin in Rhode Island? What were kind of you're you're from Rhode Island? What was kind of your family situation growing up? What were you like as a kid? You know how to how what was young Heather like as a, as a youth? <laughs> that's fantastic. Yes, I grew up in Rhode Island, and uh, I am one of four children. I have a brother and two sisters. Um, right smack in the middle at number three. And, you know, I think that I was a pretty normal kid. I loved to read. I spent a lot of time doing that. I loved to dance and just have a lot of fun, you know, with my family and friends. And I loved growing up in Rhode Island. Uh, I grew up in the northern part of the state, which is lovingly referred to as the non-touristy part. Uh, <laughs> it was... People always ask uh, when they say, oh, yo, you're from Rhode Island. Um, You must have spent a lot of time at the beach. And I would always joke that uh, no, because uh, it took about 45 minutes to get to the ocean. And my mom considered that a big day trip. So (laughs) um, that is not how I feel living in places that are larger geographically since. (laughs) (laughs) Did you guys spend a lot of time talking about um, current events at home? Was that a thing that was discussed around the dinner table? Yeah. So, uh, one of the things that I always remember is that my dad in particular, and I talked a lot about policy and just things that we were interested in and different issues and the books, you know, I mean, just so many things like that. Um, but my parents notably, um, were registered independents and that always struck me as, you know, just being willing to listen to what other people had to say and to, you know, just to be a lot more thoughtful in, in their approach. Um, we had really detailed conversations that I enjoyed, but I will also say that it wasn't a political family by any means. Like we did not go to rallies or other campaign events. I never went to a campaign event until I worked on a campaign. And it was just such a different experience, I think, than a lot of folks who tend to get involved in politics. 
But we had a lot of those conversations and that definitely fueled my interest in policy, um, but also I think really has formed me as a person who is always trying to understand where other people are coming from. So you come from this family of independent thinkers, but not super political types. How, what was your path then into politics and government and advocacy as a career? How do you figure out that this, not only is this a thing that you want to do with your life, but that this is a a career that people have generally? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, it's, it just kind of fell in my lap in, in a way I had, when I was deciding what I wanted to go to college for, uh, my first thought was, I want to help people. So what am I going to do to help people? And so I started off majoring in social work, and I picked a college based on that. But uh, maybe a semester into it, realized that was not my calling, and just started rethinking about what did I love as a kid, and what classes did I love in high school in retrospect, I probably should have thought of that first. Uh, but that was kind of where I was at. And I thought, I love history. I've always loved history. I love policy. I love how government works. I find the process fascinating. And so when I was trying to decide on a new major, my choices at that college, I went to Western New England College um, in Springfield, Massachusetts. And my choices were history or government. And my first thought was, well, I love both, but I'll definitely have to go to graduate school if I major in history. I know I can't afford it, so I guess I'll go with government. <laughs> and <laughs> that was kind of how I ended up in it, but I loved it. I loved every class. I found it so fascinating. And then I had the opportunity, um, as so many people do, you know, with an internship. And I was able to intern in Washington, D.C. Um, in the Senate. And I was with the Senate Committee on Labor and Human Resources, which, of course, is now the HELP Committee. But at the time, um, it was 1996, the ranking member was Senator Ted Kennedy. And just that opportunity and living there for a summer solidified it for me. And I knew from that point on that as soon as I graduated from college, I was going to move to D.C. and I was going to figure it out from there. So how did you how did you do that? Because a lot of people have made that trek, right? They they come to DC, they they do an internship, like this is fantastic. I want to do this. Uh, I'm coming back. So how did how did you go about kind of breaking into the field, starting a career in DC once you come back after college? Yeah, it was definitely harder than I thought it would be, and I think that's really important for people to keep in mind uh, that it's not as easy as you think it might be. I when and I just applied for so many different positions in, uh, you know, for representatives' offices, for senators' offices, and discovered that it takes a really long time for offices to make hiring decisions. And so um, went through a lot of interviews and then started looking into government affairs just as a, you know, let's see what else is out there kind of thing. And Something I also found very fascinating, and I don't know if this is different now, but at the time, um, in all of the, you know, the newspapers with the job listings, uh, it would never say where you were sending your resume to. It would just give kind of an idea of what the interest group was. Mm. So I had no idea other than they were, you know, uh, first job kind of jobs. And one of the places that got back to me was the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. I had never heard of them before. Yeah, what is that? I don't know what that is. <laughs> right? Um, it's futures trading. And um, I mean, I grew up in New England. I understand the stock exchange. Um, it was a lot closer to home. I had never heard of futures trading before. And the other place um, that also reached out to me was the Independent Insurance Agents of America. Those were my two interviews that I got. And I thought in that moment, well, you know, both of them would be great. The people that I met with were wonderful, uh, but I'm really intrigued by something I don't know anything about, and I'll take this opportunity to learn, and that's how I ended up at the Chicago Merc. So you go to work for the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Those first jobs, they often teach us a lot, especially when you're brand new to D.C. Uh, what did you learn in that experience at the Chicago Merc? that you've been able to kind of take with you on your career path that you've walked since? Were there any formative lessons uh, that that you learned there? 
Oh, I think first and foremost is that relationships matter. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I started out answering phones, you know, and sending faxes, which, you know, when I say that now, people are like, what is that? Um, I love those conversations with younger people. Um, but <laughs> just doing, you know, just the nitty gritty stuff. Um, but if you are doing your job and doing it well um, and being really responsive, then people notice that helps. Um, but one of the things that was just really wonderful was that I built, um, that sounds kind of weird, but I built a really wonderful friendship um, with my boss, who is still a friend to this day. And she really took me under her wing and was a wonderful mentor and helped me along my path and pointed out things to me that I just never had thought of. You know, I mentioned earlier that part of the reason I didn't major in history was because I'd have to go to grad school and I didn't know how I'd pay for it. Literally, one of the first things she said to me in my first few months of working for the Merck was, you know, one of the things that this company offers is tuition reimbursement for graduate school. And that was what got me on that path even to begin with. Yeah, so it's it's shortly thereafter that you you enroll at, at GSPM. How do you how do you wind up there? Obviously, there's the financial incentive of you know tuition reimbursement from your employer. But how do you how do you find out about about GW and GSPM, and, and how do you make the decision that this is the particular graduate program that you're interested in in attending? Sure. So I I think I did what most people my age at the time would do, which was just to look up every single program in the DC area, which certainly is going to be a lot, you know, there's a reason for that. And I, the, the program at GW really jumped out at me in large part because of the legislative affairs program being a night program and that the classes were very conveniently scheduled. The location in the hall of States was so easily accessible. I could work all day and go over there and still be home at a reasonable hour too. And so I just found the the classes that were being offered to sound really interesting and it all just kind of came together. What, what did you enjoy the most from, from your GSPM experience? Did you have a a favorite class or or a favorite professor who, who even, you know, now many years later still, still stands out to you as you, as you look back on that experience? I think there were a couple of things that I really loved about it. One of them is personal. And then one of them would be the education side of things that, education piece of it, I loved the classes. I am I am the type of person that enjoys sitting in a lecture and loves a dyna- dynamic back and forth conversation. And the classes that I loved in particular were around public opinion and uh, special interest politics because it's just so fascinating and really kind of digging down on how everyone, no matter who they are, um, has some kind of agenda. And that sounds really negative when you say it that way. And I don't mean it in a negative way. I just mean that everyone is putting forth, you know, what they want um, and what they think the best answer is. And it's forced me to really think about why people are putting forward that particular idea And what is my role and job in kind of taking that information and processing it and, you know, thinking through what are the other choices or other ideas. And so having that kind of background, I think is incredible. It's certainly been beneficial as a legislator, right, to think about when folks come to me from the lobby of, you know, what they're pushing um, my response back to them is always, well, what would the other side say? Mm. And if someone cannot make the case both ways, then I have a harder time with them. You know, I really want to understand what their reasoning is, but also I want them to be able to not make the other person's case, but to acknowledge that there is another side. So that I think was incredibly beneficial and has served me very well. The other piece of it is very personal in the sense that um, part of my desire to go to graduate school was also to make friends. I Mm -hmm. lived in a new city. I was just out of college 
And the truth is, unless you're working in a really big office, and my office was only four people, uh, and none of them were my age, um, it's really hard to make friends, or it can be really hard to make friends in DC. And so I made a lot of really wonderful friends. And the other, and as part of that, uh, let's see, three of them um, were in my wedding. Uh, and the other ones were also at the wedding. Um, and I am still friends with them. And thankfully, because of social media, we're able to still really stay in touch. Uh, but one of the things that I particularly love and I will always remember and think about is that the people that I was closest to in the legislative affairs program are of the opposite political party as me. Um, and so it was just another reminder that sometimes things are bigger than politics and that we can have really big, robust debates. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, for the most part, we're a lot closer than we're sometimes giving ourselves credit for. And if we're actually willing to listen to each other, then we can maybe move the dialogue a little bit more. You mentioned that one of the big appeals of the GSPM program for you was that it was at night. It was conveniently scheduled. And a lot of folks, I think, mentioned that as, as a really great benefit uh, of the GSPM programs. Um, and just the idea of being able to go to school at night and learn from these you know, amazing professors who are at the top of, of their fields uh, doing this every day, and then being able to take that knowledge and put it into practice at work the next day. Did you see that in your experience? How were you able to kind of take what you were learning at night and then apply it uh, from the classroom into your day job at the Chicago Merck uh, when you went back to work? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with any, you know, trade association, you're going to, you know, different other trade association meetings and hearing their perspectives and, you know, kind of figuring out how we're moving forward on any number of different issues, right? And again, being able to go to these different meetings and hear, you know, here is the perspective we're putting out, here's what we think you should be doing, et cetera. To be able to take that information and process it and say, yes, this is what this organization thinks we should do, um, but they're obviously coming at it from a very specific point of view. And let's also think about what the other side might be saying, I think was incredibly important. And then the other piece is that uh, after, as I went through the program, I was certainly getting um, more responsibilities and doing more of our political action committee work and learning a lot more about that, I found to be incredibly helpful. And so it was, it, it all just came together so nicely. At this point in your career, you've kind of been involved, you know, in at various points along the way in the process of hiring folks or promoting folks within the, the organizations, you know, in which you've worked. Can you just briefly discuss when you're making those decisions about, you know, hiring one candidate over another or promoting one person or not, what are the, what are the skills that you're looking for? And how, in your experience as a GSPM alum, how does GSPM help students build those kinds of skills that they're going to need to, to get a competitive advantage um, in their careers as they move forward? Oh, man, I think critical thinking is just the most important skill that someone can develop. And I certainly found that to be a big thing with GSPM, uh, you know, on any number of the different, you know, courses that were being offered. It was really just to be able to think critically on every issue. And that that's what I look for um, with folks that I want to work with. And it's also what I look for with candidates that I want to support and, I guess, even endorse, you know, as one elected official to another, uh, you know, who is doing the really good job of listening, who is actually willing to put themselves out on a particular issue, and then also being willing to grow if they learn something new, right, that I think that unfortunately, we're kind of in this situation and culture right now where 
if someone has been advocating for a position, learns something new, if they change their mind at all, sometimes it's just seen as completely selling out or, you know, just flip-flopping in some way. Whereas I think it's really important to recognize that growth is a good thing. And, you know, you don't want to just fundamentally change who you are as a person um, and all of your beliefs. But if you learn something new, isn't it better to take that information and grow with it than it is to just not being willing to change at all? It's not long after you graduate from GSPM, I think just a couple of years, that you and your husband moved to Iowa for him to attend medical school. And you've kind of been there ever since. As you said, it's kind of your adoptive home state, even though Rhode Island is is your home state. What made you all fall in love with Iowa and lead you to make that your home for the long term for all these years later? You have a family there now. Yes, um, it was definitely unexpected. Uh, We absolutely believed that we were going to move here, be here for four years, and then we were going to hightail it back east uh, because all of our families there, my husband's family uh, is in Maryland, right outside of the city. And my family is all up and down the East Coast. And so that was absolutely our plan. Uh, And I will tell you uh, just a quick story of how we got here, which I think kind of captures it. Uh, My husband had been accepted to a couple different medical school programs in other parts of the country. And he was choosing between two of them. And one of them was Des Moines University. And he said to me, well, you know, when the other school, when I was accepted to the other school, uh, they uh, sent me a bill. When I was accepted to DMU, they sent me a t-shirt. And that Mess that story just always resonates with me, and I tell it over and over again because it is just a reminder of how welcoming the state was for us and how easy it was to get involved and make friends and you know just explore new opportunities. And so, as we stayed, and you know, I worked on campaigns and you know, just completely got involved in politics, and he made his way through medical school. We just met some amazing people and realized that this is just a really wonderful state. And we thought it would be a great place to live and work and raise a family. And that's what did it. That's how we stayed. When you moved there in in 2003, you have a different run of a run of different jobs on a variety of campaigns. As you mentioned, you got really involved in politics. You worked on John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004, you raised money for for con- Congressman Leonard Boswell, who's just a fixture of Iowa politics, um, managed the Dusky Terry's race for state secretary of agriculture, which is a big job in Iowa, um, <laughs> and eventually working as chief of staff to Christy Vilsack when her husband, uh, Governor Tom Vilsack, was, was running for, for president. Looking back now, that's kind of, and you did all that in roughly four years or so. If you look back at all that now, what... What were the biggest things that you learned from those years on the trail that have kind of helped propel you forward on this trajectory you followed, where you very much, even if you haven't been in campaigns, quote unquote, the entire time, you've been at least politics adjacent and working in policy and, and advocacy. What did you learn then that that's helped you on the road since? I would say probably just that relationships matter and that it's it's getting your foot in the door and then showing that you can do the work and continuing to foster those relationships keeps moving you ahead. So, you know, when I was first moving to Iowa, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. And I had never worked in politics before. And so even though I knew I was moving to a state that, you know, was first in the nation caucus, I didn't have a really good sense of what that actually meant. And I was in my kind of late 20s by this point, which is not, you know, when most people start working on campaigns. But I had been, when I was still in D.C., I had been at an event for Congressman Leonard Boswell, just there, you know, in my role at the Merck, and mentioned to him that I was moving to his district. And at that event, he, I mean, he was wonderful. Um, I miss him. He has since passed away, and he was a really gracious and wonderful human. Um, and a great congressman. And 
in that moment, his first response was, oh, I'm so glad. And he immediately put me in touch with his state director, who I spoke to not long after and said, you know, well, one of my best friends is running John Kerry's caucus campaign. Do you like John Kerry? And I said, well, I'm from New England. So, of course, I love John Kerry. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And so he helped me get that interview. And I had a great, you know, phone interview with, um, his name is John Norris. Um, he was the state director and he hired me to be his assistant. And we just, um, you know, it was a great, great job. And I learned so much about campaigns and politics and just, you know, all of that. Um, but just in doing that job and, showing that I knew what I was doing. Then the next step was, you know, what am I going to do after this caucus is over? Well, um, John Norris, of course, had been really involved in supporting Leonard Boswell over the years. So he then put me in touch with some folks who were doing his reelection. And the next thing you know, I'm their finance director. (laughs) So it just, you know, and then one thing led to another. And that has just been um, an amazing trajectory and, and you just, that's one of the most amazing things about politics too. Um, how, you know, you foster those relationships that are authentic and meaningful and, you know, you're transparent and you hold true to yourself and it all just kind of follows together. Campaigns are great because, uh, and I say that as a campaign person myself, they're great because they're never dull. Um, they're a lot of work. And they're not always extremely financially rewarding, but they're ne- they're always exciting. And there's always something interesting happening. Do you have, if you look back on those early campaign days um, in Iowa, do you have a favorite memory or, or a favorite story uh, that stands out from that early part of, of your time there? Well, yes, I think... Uh... Absolutely true on not necessarily always financially rewarding. I certainly, I mean, my pay cut um, in moving to Iowa and doing a campaign job was my salary was cut in half. And uh, my husband went from having a salary to none um, being in medical school. And we took out a tremendous amount of loans that we were obviously still paying off. Um, So we were definitely living very frugally. Um, And you know, I think when I think of those early years there, there are just memories of when we would get together as, you know, just friends on the campaign and we'd splurge that like one time to go have the really expensive sandwich, you know, (laughs) (laughs) from the one at the time, very nice place in downtown Des Moines. And of course, downtown Des Moines has changed dramatically since 2003, which is also a big part of us staying because the city has changed so much. But um, yes, when you're splurging on a sandwich, um, it's pretty exciting. Uh, (laughs) But so much of it too, honestly, is, I feel like I keep going back to friendships, but it really does matter. And, you know, that's what I remember so much um, from those early campaign days are the people that I'm still friends with who have supported me many years later in running for office and that I've been able to support, you know, as they run or, you know, just in the campaigns that they're working on um, and, and really kind of paying it forward that way. After Vilsack in 07, you go to work for Planned Parenthood of Greater Iowa and you start this this pretty long relationship with that organization that ultimately, you know, culminates in you serving as the board chair for for the organization's political arm for several years. There's there's obviously some overlap from campaign life, but issue advocacy is is also a little different. It's a little bit of a different beast. It's similar but different. Um what were the biggest things you were able to bring to Planned Parenthood and, and the work you did there from your previous experience on the camp- campaign trail? And what was different? What did you have to learn or adapt to in this kind of slightly different uh, world that you were entering? Oh, sure. So I think, you know, well, when I first started at Planned Parenthood, uh, they brought me on to a totally new position, which was manager of political giving. And so this particular affiliate had not really done, they'd done some political fundraising 
but not a lot. And certainly, you know, times have changed a lot, right, in how a lot of organizations, Planned Parenthood included, have really come to understand that if they want to affect change uh, and are not happy with how decisions are being made in this state and country, then they need to get involved in politics um, as much as they may or may not want to. And so this was kind of that first step of how do we get more involved in the political process to affect change and to get policy talked about in a way that we believe that it needs to. And so because I had been doing political fundraising, you know, albeit for candidates as opposed to an issue organization, uh, it translated in a lot of ways of just being able to talk about fundraising from a political point of view in the sense of, you know, this is about our shared ideals. And whether it is for an organization or for an individual candidate, if you believe in this overall message and you want to make a difference, then let's join together to do so. And so that's, I think, how it translated to begin with. Uh, And then I'd say what I had to learn was when I kind of moved out of the political fundraising side of things and started doing more traditional government affairs and research and lobbying, uh, certainly taking what I learned from GSPM on how to, you know, deal with issue advocacy and special interests to, you know, be a lobbyist um, for Planned Parenthood. Uh, That was a little bit of a learning curve, but I loved having that background knowledge to help me figure it out. Uh, But those relationships with legislators, some of which I had actually built, you know, from doing campaigns, right? People who had been state representatives, state senators who had endorsed the candidates that I'd worked for. So I already had some of those relationships and it was a great place to start. Uh, But it's always a learning curve to, to talk to people in a different context. So, you know, outside of the Capitol, when you're talking about politics, it's one thing. And then, you know, how you're working with them in the Capitol, it's something else entirely. So that was a little bit of a learning curve. Yeah. And to that to that point, you also uh, from 2011 to 2015, you also work as a as a bill tracker in the Iowa legislature, tracking legislation for clients of Campbell Patterson Consulting. What did that role teach you about the mechanics of lawmaking and that whole process, the legislative process and how that works. And how has that been helpful now as you're actually on the other side as a lawmaker lawmaker yourself? Yeah, I mean, bill tracking is fascinating and it's going to be, and, and I'm sure that it's not a statement that most people would ever say ever um, or even believe, but I find it to be fascinating. <laughs> I have discovered and, and I will freely admit this to everybody. In fact, I would say it when I was knocking doors um, for my own campaign that I am a geek for the process and I am very proud of that. Um, and it's a really cool place to be if you want to be there. Um, but being able to see from start to finish how a piece of legislation is crafted and how it makes its way through the process. So, I mean, in Iowa, you know, you're going to have, well, like anywhere, right? But obviously everyone does it slightly different. But, you know, you'll have a bill introduced. Um, It'll have a certain number to it. It'll go through a subcommittee, move on to the full committee. Um, It might change numbers um, and, you know, have a completely different, you know, bill number assigned to it. And so to be able to have provide kind of that direction for folks to understand the linking between, you know, this is what it started as. This is what it's become. And then it goes over to the other chamber. They might substitute the number for a companion bill. And now this is the one that we're working off of. Um, But to be able to help folks draw the line and know exactly where that piece of legislation is in the process is wonderful. I, I just find it so important, too, because a big thing for me is transparency in government Uh both from just like government as a whole, being transparent about the things that they're doing, but elected officials making it as easy as possible for their constituents to understand the process and how to get involved in it. And so being able to really work through all of those details. And I'm, I'm now as a legislator, so diligent and, you know, every newsletter that I send out 
kind of talk through all of those things um, because it makes it so much more real for people. And then people feel invested. Um, And I think that's that's what we want of our constituents is for them to feel invested in the process. So fast forward to, to 2018, you obviously do decide to run for the Iowa House of Representatives yourself. Um, lots of people think about running for office, but I feel like few actually go through with it. They think it, you know, it might be a thing. Oh, maybe I'll do that someday. But a lot of people don't actually, you know, put their name on the ballot. It's a, it's a lot of work and it really requires putting yourself out there for basically a yes or no vote on whether thousands of people want you to represent them. Um, what went into your decision-making process uh, as you were deciding to do that? And how did you decide that this was a thing that you were actually going to put yourself out there and do? Well, that is that is the question, right? Um, and you're right. A lot of people think about it um, and are dissuaded for any number of different reasons. And I'll tell you, I'm very fortunate because over the years, I've had a lot of really wonderful people that I respect very much say, Heather, you should think about running for office someday. And every time it would happen, I'd kind of, you know, laugh it off or say, oh, you know, that's not me. I don't, I like being in the background. I like, you know, helping others be successful. I don't want my name to be the one that's out there. And it wasn't until, uh, let's see, the 2014 election cycle, that was when I was the vice chair of the Iowa Democratic Party. And we had some phenomenal candidates on the ballot. um, And it turned out to be a not so great election year for Democrats. And that was definitely true in Iowa. And in my own Iowa House district um, that I had relatively recently moved to, I was really unhappy with our member, with our with our legislator, um, particularly regarding things like women's health and education. And I just thought, I feel like I could do this job. <laughs> and and I, you know, people are telling me I should think about running. Why haven't I really thought about running? And so I sat down with my husband and other friends that I trusted very much, who had some of them in and out of politics and said, you know, is this something I should think about doing? And we really walked through it. And, and I decided, you know, my background actually lends myself to this so perfectly. Uh, And no joke, I would talk about on the campaign trail, how I have a master's degree in legislative affairs. And it was front and center on my door knocking card. Um, because I wanted people to know that I was coming at this with a very specific uh, knowledge base and that I was doing this because I wanted people to be a part of the process. And I wanted to make sure that we had a state government that was transparent and, you know, actually was following the rules, right? And not just making decisions in the dark of night, which, you know, Obviously, this happens all over the place, but I wanted to, as much as possible, say we should put a stop to that. And so I first ran in 2016. And as I'm sure everyone remembers and knows, 2016 was not a great year for Democrats. (laughs) Um, And so um, I failed in that House race. And it took about a year Um, to think about whether or not I was going to run again. But some of the best advice that I got, and it wasn't to me directly, I just heard someone say this once upon a time. It was a woman legislator, state rep. I think she was from Colorado. And she said, you don't need thick skin to run for office. You just need resilient skin. Um, thin, Thin skin actually is a good thing because it allows you to feel things. And you need that, you know, if you're going, if you want to be a public servant and help people, you need to be able to feel things. That's what fuels your passion and kind of pushes you to keep being out there. Um, but what you do need is resilient skin because you will get pushed down. And the question is, it's what do you do when you get back up again? You know, are you willing to put yourself back out there and, in 2017, I watched really bad legislation pass through the Iowa legislature because it became a trifecta. Um, 
And so Republicans held everything. Um, but there were a lot of really bad pieces of legislation being passed. And I thought, you know what? I don't think things are going to get any better unless we change. And I should do it again. And I did. And I went from losing by 1,500 votes in 2016 to winning by 500. And it's all because I had some wonderful people around me who helped, um, but because I was willing to pick myself back up and try it again. Yeah, you obviously work very hard and you win that very tight race uh, over an incumbent who you lost to previously. Um, Losing in politics is one of the things that fascinates me, having been on the losing side uh, before as not as a not as a person with a with their name on the ballot, but just as a staffer. just it, it 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 is even as a staff level, and I imagine so much more when you are the person whose name is on the ballot. It just feels like such a rejection and so demoralizing. Yeah. Like you're literally having thousands of people tell you, "No, not you. You're not good enough." Um, and to come back from that, and to work really hard, and to overcome that uh, that that obstacle, and ultimately succeed as you did two years later in 2018, and win. Just walk me through how it finally, how it felt to finally break through and realize that you'd overcome and that you'd won. It has to be a, a pretty surreal feeling. It is an incredibly surreal feeling, and I want to just also acknowledge what you said, though, too, about being a staffer and losing an election. Um, that is heartbreaking and so difficult, especially when you know that you've done all of the things right? Like you raised the money and you knocked the doors and you did all of this and then just, you still lose. And I've had that experience as a staffer and I've had that experience as a candidate. And what you learn from all of that is how there is no ability, none to predict an election, (laughs) you know, um, or to do exactly all the right things and guarantee an outcome. And so, you know, losing in 2016 was was definitely like, you know, a sucker punch to the gut because I thought, but I did all the things, you know, I I knocked more doors, I raised more money. Um, I felt like I wanted it more, you know, all of those things and to still lose. And that was a really hard thing to process. And I think for women in particular, women candidates, we tend to take it very personally as this is about me. This person doesn't like me. And that's why they didn't vote for me. And I, when I was able to take a step back over several months, I could think about how there were much bigger things at play, you know, in that election cycle, that it became very much a national election, even at the state legislative level. And to be able to say, you know, here are the things that I know that we did well. What could I do differently and better if I ran again? And what what has been happening over, you know, the last year or so since my election that would make me believe that I have a fighting chance a second time around? And once I was able to go through all of that, and say, yeah, I, I don't think it was about me. I think that it was a tough year and there was so much that was out of my control that if I built on the good work that we did last time and had a more favorable environment in 2018 and had a message that made sense, then it could work itself out and you still never know, but I, felt like I would just be kicking myself if I didn't try it. And that's what pushed me to do it. Uh, and the probably the greatest moment um, on election night was, uh, you know, I was at a, a party that a friend and constituent was throwing for me, you know, just a watch party. I refused to call it like any kind of victory party. I was, you know, just... Oh, I was so scared. Um, but I had friends who were scrolling constantly, like updating on their phone, the election website to watch the precincts come in. And I was holding my friend's two week old baby for comfort <laughs> and, you know, just going through all of that. 
And a one of my friends called me over at one moment and I came over and she just said, you won. And I started crying and um, immediately someone took the baby because they were scared that I was going to drop. <laughs> um, and it was just really beautiful. And my friends hugged me and then my husband came over and hugged me. And then my daughter, um, uh, who at the time was nine, um, came running in cause she'd been playing in another room and she just said, what happened? And I looked at her and I said, we won. And we hugged and cried together. And my husband captured a really amazing picture of that moment. And it is something that I will hold with me forever. Um, Being able to tell your daughter um, that you won an election that you fought so hard for and that every sacrifice you made of time um, to make it happen was worth it. It's a wonderful story. So now you're obviously, you're a member of the legislature now, you're in your first term. And, you know, at this time when it's interesting, trust in institutions is kind of at an all-time low, um, kind of across the board, all institutions, corporate, you know, government, uh, just everything. Um, People are just very distrustful of big institutions, particularly young people. and so the question I have for you, and I ask this to everybody, is what advice would you give to a young person on, A, why they should even bother to get involved in this, in government politics, you know, this, this giant institution that they distrust at all, and B, how if they do decide to go down this path and get involved in, in this thing, politics, how can they find their own voice, their own way to make impact or to, to really contribute and participate in our democracy? Oh, that I feel like is the biggest question. And it's the hardest question because you're right. Uh, trust is so low. And as someone who believes in institutions and believes in the process and that it can work when you have people of good faith working together, you know, even if they're coming from different viewpoints, right? If everyone's still willing to work in good faith to move forward, then anything is possible. And it is exceptionally difficult for me as someone who believes in that to feel thwarted by it, right? At the same time. And what I tell young people all the time, I mean, one of my favorite things is talking to students, um, whether it's at school or the Capitol or, you know, some other group meeting. I tell them all the time that your voice matters and that it is your job just as much as it is a grown-up's job to share your thoughts and to be an advocate for the things that you believe in because you matter and you are just as much a part of this community as anyone else and to encourage them to put themselves out there. I also encourage every young woman that I talk to to run for office. Uh, so, you know, those things together, I think are so important. Um, and, and I just want people to know that they have an ability just because of who they are and their own unique perspective to make a difference. If they are willing to put themselves out there and fight for what they believe in, and if you think things are not going as well as they could be, then why are you standing back and expecting something to change? You have to be willing to change it. Um, That's how we move forward, both as a state and as a country. It is when people are willing to put themselves out there to be a part of that change. Last question. There are a lot of opinions about what makes for a successful career. And by my metrics, you've had a pretty successful career in a number of different spaces. Um, In your experience, what have you found to be the most important? What you know or who you know? Or is it some combination of both? I believe it's absolutely a combination of both. And I mean, I mentioned, you know, some of the ways that I got my foot in the door was because of getting to know people. Uh, But more doors kept opening because I was able to show 
what I had been able to do once I'd been given the opportunity. So that's really important. And I think it's also important that in every aspect of this, you're your just your own authentic self. And that's, I think, what people are looking for. Um, you know, I mentioned critical thinking before, also important. Um, but if you are authentic and you're honest and you're willing to do the work, then that will help propel you forward. And my favorite piece of advice that I got just from reading a book, um, but it was in Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. And I know there are a lot of different feelings about that book uh, as a whole, but um, one of my favorite chapters is titled something like, no one's going to give you a tiara. And when I first got to that chapter, I'm like, what a, where is this going to go? And the whole point is that women in particular, but this can be true of, you know, just about anybody, they think if I just put my head down and I do the work, someone will notice, someone will give me a promotion Someone will give me a raise because I'm just doing the work. And the truth is, is that no one's going to give you a tiara. You have to be able to be your own advocate and fight for what you want um, and, and ask. You know, you're never going to move forward if you don't ask for what you want and what you believe you deserve. And so my best advice that I try to pay forward as well is that constant reminder of, If you are doing a good job, if you believe that you can do, you know, a great job in a new role um, or that you could do a great job in elected office, then don't wait for someone to give it to you. Put yourself out there and fight for it. That's how we move forward. Wise words from a wise woman, Representative Heather Madsen. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I know you're super busy. You've got a lot going on, but we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to our listeners. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. This was so much fun. 